Christianity is a vehicle for people's motivations, just like anything else. You know, like when we talk about the referendum on institutions that we're going through as a country, you know, from the Democratic and Republican parties to the academy, the church is just as malleable as any of those things to the influence of outsiders or to the influence of, of, um, politics within the country where they are. I mean, that's the whole story of Christianity. So I I think that, um, on, on one level, it's kind of like, You've got to make. I, I think w- w- when we get down to all sorts of organizing of any kind, religious or non, the local level is where you have the opportunity to kind of to set the uh, the terms of how you engage with community, no matter what that community looks like. But if you're if you want to understand the political evolution of the United States in the last 100 years, you can't really do that without accounting for the influence of sort of American Christianity on the federal government and and our cultural life. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. I'm Isaac. We're joined today by uh, Kevin Rose. What up, Kevin? Hey. Folks, the first episode is dropped. Thanks to everyone who listened. Please rate and review. Smash that subscribe button because... We all want to quit our jobs and pod full time. So, uh, but first, we thought that it might help if we actually told you who we are. <laughs> what the uh, pod's about, Brian? Why not you go? Yeah, I'm Brian, and uh, I I don't even know how to explain what I do. I do a bunch of different things. I've been working in the church for like twenty some years. Uh, also, a young adult novelist. I think that about it. I, I'd like to keep the young adult novelist. Maybe the church stuff. We'll see. Uh, so, yeah, hit that subscribe button so we can kind of get this thing taking off. Brian, do you want to plug your book that just came out? I wasn't going to, but yeah, my my last book, Thoughts and Prayers, just dropped. Thoughts and Prayers, a great, uh, great uh, uplifting read about kids suffering from trauma after a school shooting. So it's out through HarperCollins. Available everywhere. Why did you call it your last book? <laughs> Wait, what? Did I call it my last book? Yeah, did I just say like Freudian <laughs> slip? Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, my, I'm done. That was my last novel. Uh, is this where I start crying? <laughs> is this the moment? It's like, Netflix, hit me up, please. Uh, wow. No, my, my latest <laughs> book is what I meant. Producers clip this. Brian Bliss, noted author and uh, um, nominated for the National Book Award, reveals on pod that he's quitting writing. <laughs> yeah, that should not be the thing. Like, yeah, yeah, noted author. Slightly critically acclaimed author, Brian Bliss, quits on new podcast. I'm going all in. That's what it is. I'm going all in on this. Self cancels. Carrie, what up? Who are you? Hi, uh, I'm Carrie. My pronouns are they, them. Um, and I am a writer, a copy editor, and noted online homosexual. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Kevin, please tell the people whatever you'd like about your labor and or uh, okay. online habits. I'm I'm a yeah I'm a guest. I, I it seems like they're trying to acquire each guest as a co-host, and even if they try, I'm going to say no because I don't want a podcast. That's what you think. So yeah, I'm That's what I thought. <laughs> yes, yeah. we just keep grabbing them. <laughs> Evan, by the way, just announced something that we should draw your attention to. Carrie, the uh, for episode one guest is now a co-host of Until We Get Canceled. Round of applause. <laughs> I can't. I don't know if this is a bit or not because some podcasts do this where they call to producers and then 
and then it doesn't happen. So no, they exist. I can't wait to listen and find out if this is a bit and if there's really going to be applause. And like your whole um, voice has been changed into the Bane voice. So everything you say just sounds like Bane. Yeah, it's exactly right. I, well, I welcome I, that. If you can do that, I would love for you to do that. You can even hire a voiceover actor to just do everything I <laughs> just said. Just redo everything that you said. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know there are producers because in the first episode, I, I asked them for an air horn and then did the noise myself. And instead of including it, they clipped it. So, uh, yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So about myself, I'm Isaac's friend. I'm one of these Bishop Spong sickos who you talked about in the first episode. So uh, on behalf of marginally theistic Episcopalians everywhere, we appreciate the olive branch of asking me on. Um, I. I study American religion, so I think they, I think they have me on here because they think I can say something about evangelicals. Um, so I'm going to try to do that or say something about public Christianity. I don't know what that is either, but we'll we'll try to get into it. So that's what I do. I study American religion. Word. And if we're doing plugs, uh, yeah, check me out on Apex Legends. Yeah, my name is Turvis Shelf. All right, uh, hit me up anytime. <laughs> I was playing that last night. Let's do it. Okay. Turvis shelf, two words, add me. Are you saying purpose or turvis? I can't even. Turvis, like the tumbler, you know? It's like my special shelf for all my turvis tumblers. Wow. Wow. Okay. Extremely niche. All right. Um, <laughs> some of you have. Wait, uh, Isaac, you didn't introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. I'm a pastor in Tennessee, a Methodist. Some of you. May know me probably. I think my mom is probably counting for every listen to this. Except I'm not. I, I don't think she finished the episode. But still, oh, we got two <laughs> listens from my parents. I was like, Carrie's mom they, listened. They listened to it separately. So Carrie's mom had the had the the truth drop of like eh, sometimes that one guy just talks a whole lot. <laughs> not Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it was me. Yeah, it was me. Thank, you know what? Thanks, to Carrie's mom. Anyway, continue. Sorry. I, I also live with my parents, so she'll be a recurring guest. <laughs> I, I do want to give a disclaimer because some of you who uh, were brave enough to listen to the pod uh, had suggestions. And I just wanted to kind of clarify some of the project because we didn't do a very good job in the first episode of of kind of delineating what the full scope of uh, the Magdalene Podcast Network. So until we get canceled... The primary point of the show is that it has no point. Um, it's it's to it's basically like the audio version of posting, where we're just we're going to talk about uh, you know current events uh, in a fun way, make jokes, riff, talk about um, people in Christianity that we think are funny by accident, and but also try to inform you about some stuff that's going on and. Like our last episode with Melissa, where we were talking about the election, and and hopefully this one is going to build off of that. But there's also this is just one piece of a larger project. When in December, the Magdalene commentary is going to drop, and some folks were like, "Yo, who, I don't even know who Mag- Mary Magdalene really is." And I thought you were going to talk about her last week, but instead you talked about the Da Vinci Code for 15 minutes. <laughs> that is coming in December. The Magdalene commentary is going to have some like 101 stuff about. Mary Magdalene. It's kind of some one-on-one stuff about scripture. Like, if you want to get on the ground floor, if you're approaching this from, um, if a lot of this info is new for you, look out for that next in uh, in the next month or so, and, and we'll be sure to cross-post those in the feed. But for now, until we get canceled, we're going to try not to take ourselves too seriously on this, but but still have awesome guests and and still hopefully 
and form. But if you want the like serious uh, sort of nuts and bolts of what we're talking about and what what we are interested in, that's going to be coming to you on the Magdalene commentary feed when it drops. And until then, I think the the biggest thing about until we get canceled is that Mary Magdalene is is um, she's our the patron saint of our pod that uh, she represents what we're what we're trying to help other folks do but mainly she's just protecting us from uh divine judgment while we post divine judgment i'd also throw in there that the uh as far as like it's not just the the commentary is not just for people who are trying to get the nuts and bolts the 101 type of stuff like you know i I feel like i have a significant or at least a decent amount of uh, biblical kind of uh, education at this point and you know listening to the first one when we were listening to it uh it was kind of it's it's revelatory, I guess, to hear stories in a new way from a perspective that is actually living those stories. So I just want to put that plug in there too. That it's it's something that actually kind of uh, I think reinvigorates the the story of scripture for people uh, as well. Not just if you whether you're learning it for the first time or you're a pastor that's been kind of in the trenches for the last twenty years. It's something that I think is pretty pretty special. All right, word. Well, I, literally every time I say something on this podcast, there's like dead silence for like five seconds afterward. <laughs> I think I think that that's a compliment, but I actually don't know. So, uh, well, w- what I'm hearing from you both is that if if you want to learn something, listen to the commentary. And if you're like me and you just you're just looking for a way to not be alone with your own thoughts while you do the dishes, then listen to this weekly podcast. If you just want to hear people talking to each other. <laughs> So you're not alone with your and or if you're only here for me because I'm not involved with the commentary. So this is the only way you can get my voice in your earbuds. Wow, wow. Well, yeah, Carrie. Uh, yeah, if you want Carrie, <laughs> then uh, then you can only get it in until we get canceled. But I mean, I, I don't want I don't want this to sound trivial. Like we are going to have awesome guests. Yeah, I, I just can't guarantee that we're going to be serious 100% of the time here. This is mostly this is mostly for fun and, and for humor and to make fun of Christianity because it's so dumb. <laughs> well, and, and I think to give like, this is, we were talking about this last night on our text thread too, about this, this idea of like threading the needle a little bit for like, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian too? Because I think that there's a, there's a tendency for us to uh, just glom on to certain speakers, which maybe we'll talk about today. I won't name any of them now. I'll leave that for you, Isaac. Uh, but like to, to glom onto these people who maybe don't have the most progressive or best takes. And so like, this is, this is kind of, I think, a, a way for people to kind of either be introduced to those kind of takes or to maybe put their own own uh, thoughts on, you know, the different uh, stuff that's happening in the world, maybe on trial a little bit, which is actually going to be happening to me in real time for most of these podcasts. So welcome. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, I think that last week we talked a lot with Melissa about Christian approaches to the election, sort of this. And since then, unfortunately, in my own community, I've seen a bunch of people put up Jesus 2020 yard signs. So it's extremely (laughs) cursed out there right now, folks. Shane Claiborne right there. Uh Jesus for president. Oh, here we go. You know what though? I don't even know if I don't even know if it's Shane because some of these people are definitely like hard, like more fundamentalist evangelical than Shane Claiborne. And they're definitely like older. So I there's somebody else who's out there on that Jesus 2020 racket. (laughs) Well, that's just a dodge, right? I think that's a dodge. It's a dodge because, well, it's either a dodge or it's a it's an inability to actually articulate 
what I think that we're all going to be talking about, which is the the vast problems between both of these, you know, the both of the the political system and the idea of like uh, that it's all kind of rooted in nationalism. So I, I'm giving this is being me being very optimistic about this about those signs, but uh, yeah. I, I wonder if that's part of it. Carrie, do you think that the yard signs that say Jesus 2020, do you think those people are voting for Trump and that's how they're hiding it? Or do you think they're like yeah, point. not writing it? They're not voting for president. Like, I want to say that it's people who are not voting for either party. But in my heart, I think at least half of the people with Jesus 2020 yard signs are casting their actual vote for Trump. Mm. And that's where my, that's where my cynic, cynic's mind goes. I'm not uh, optimistic about like evangelical Christians voting practices. They're casting their votes and casting their crowns. Oh, <laughs> oh Lord. Here we go. Uh, episode title. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, I, I have to admit that I was so into casting crowns in high school and middle school. It, it's so bleak. Oh, Isaac. <laughs> I'm sorry, but there it is. You know, you confessed some stuff on, on the last pod, Brian, about your bad Christian taste, and here's mine. But you know, the I think the Wait, biggest. Did I? What, oh well, well I'll, I'll have to listen back. I don't remember that. <laughs> Maybe I didn't realize it was bad. <laughs> we were wearing a WrestleMania shirt. So yeah, there anyway, it is. Um, I think that the other big thing that was like really shocking in 2020 was David Crowder touring on doing a MAGA tour. <laughs> Wait, is that shocking? People process that. <laughs> I, I, it was shocking to me just because I thought that David Crowder was generally like way more apolitical than that. I really didn't think that he was going to like, I thought he was going to try to thread the needle in a way more Shane Claiborne like way, because he's also like a musician and part of that's just like being a businessman. So I just kind of assumed that he would, he would not go on tour with like Franklin Graham or whoever, because he would want to like keep those progressive Christians who still like David Crowder band, like keeping the Spotify streams going, you know? Kevin, yeah. I, I heard you jumping in there. Go for it. Oh, I was just going to, I mean, this is, this goes back to what I think is kind of an overarching, for me, an overarching way of thinking about the like evangelicals and politics and like the, you know, the, the idea of being apolitical that a lot of, a lot of evangelicals will throw out there that, that there's a, um, the whole, the whole phenomenon of evangelicals wanting to be in public life and wanting to be famous goes back to like Dwight Moody, at least in the 1870s, where they like, yeah, they, they want to be as famous as possible to have as big of an audience as possible, which I think is kind of what Carrie was saying. And then and they'll, they'll say that they're apolitical, which is what Dwight Moody or Billy Graham would say. Um, but I think that there's a way in which their, their ideas about Christianity, which are about producing the conditions for unfettered autonomy and like total freedom for their people have always ridden on, on the backs of like enslavement and settler colonialism and imperialism that like, uh, like the U S has always produced autonomy for some through, uh, sort of violence toward others or exploitation toward others. So evangelicals, there, there's a tendency to like say, Oh, we're apolitical. We're just trying to emphasize this, like choice for personal salvation that you can have, but that 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 oftentimes is that's like intertwined with the nationalist logic of like we we create liberty for the few. So I don't think I don't take any of them at their word when they say they're apolitical. Billy Graham loved to say he was apolitical and like 
yeah, I, I, I don't buy it. Well, okay. So this is why Kevin's on the pod, y'all. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to, to unpack there. But first, I just want to say that the, the David Crowder coming out as a MAGA head and going on tour with Franklin Graham was probably just a big boon to to the David Crowder to Sufjan Stevens pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as David David Crowder started appearing with Franklin Graham, Sufjan started working on the Ascension. It was like, my Spotify numbers are going to go through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Finally decided to to succumb to his older brother, Stephen Crowder's pressure (laughs) to start doing politics. (laughs) Uh, if anybody here doesn't doesn't know who Sufjan Stevens is, he's I don't know. He's uh, he's the Venn diagram. He's the Venn diagram for progressive Anglican types and evangelicals. Progressive evangelicals, like that's where they meet. Mm-hmm. They meet at Sufjan Stevens, right there. It's like it's it, that, that was the one of my favorite things about kind of discovering uh, Anglican Twitter, as they say, was like, oh, a lot of you all are just like you're kind of just like real close to uh, evangelicals and a lot of this stuff, and that's one of them. So. I would say one of those well, a- triple Venn diagrams <laughs> of like there's there's the Anglican types and there's you know the progressive evangelical types, but the third one interacting where everybody loves Sufjan is just gays. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's our gay angel. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Kevin, I so I, I hear what you're saying. I I think that there's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack with Billy Graham and his relationship to his son, Franklin, because one of the funniest things about 2020 and the preceding years, especially the Trump years, is how like the second generation of like evangelical media fail sons has just been like humiliating themselves in public in the last <laughs> few years, which yeah. is a gift. Um, but I, I do... So when you're talking about the autonomy though, I, I also want us to consider what role their like constant persecution and sort of grievance, persecution complex and grievance culture, especially around like, you know, identity politics and stuff or, or the pandemic closure of tur- of churches. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what role does that play in that quest for autonomy? Is it, is it a foil for it or what? Like the um, we're embattled kind of yeah. narrative Christians are the most persecuted people in the country that line I mean how can that how can that like search for autonomy and that like sort of false persecution complex how do they work together yeah I, I mean that I think that's a, that's a really big question that I can't I can't like fully answer but um I mean I think about evangelical history you can. I don't even. We don't even have to call them evangelicals. I think about the, the kind of reactionary conservative network of Christians who are now known as evangelicals. Like they, they've they've undergone a, a series of rebrands in their history. Right? They were fundamentalists for a long time, and that was a kind of reactionary. Like we are embattled by modernism. Modernism is. Um, sort of ruining the direction of this country and we need to react against that and get back to the fundamentals. And um, there's all kinds of weird stuff around like advertising and marketing and connections to like the Quaker Oats guy who helped them come up with this brand. There's a kind of history of, of having this reactionary branding for themselves where they say like, we are, we have to protect our ability to choose Jesus for ourselves as individuals from this broader society and it's a way of of i don't know I, I mean you could say it's a way of like whitewashing certain certain politics around like not not wanting to redistribute wealth 
So for example, like, like they even fundamentalists were super anti new deal and they said it was because it was going to restrict their choice. And, um, there are these, these two fundamentalist preachers who, uh, when the national recovery act was asking stores to put a blue Eagle in their window to say they were compliant with the regulations, they were going around saying that was the mark of the beast. And it was gonna, it was gonna, um, remove everyone's ability to choose for themselves. And then that was the message of Billy Graham to like, we have to protect free enterprise. And then I think like in the last 40 years, the new brand is, is the family. And that's become this container for all kinds of nasty reactionary politics. Like, like if you, after the civil rights movement, it, it's a little uncouth to say, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a racist, but you can say, I'm a family values guy and I want to be able to control where my kids are educated. And so I, I want to be able to have school choice or a private school that I don't pay taxes on or whatever, because uh, I want, I want to still have a segregated school for my kids. So that becomes this container for that. And yeah, I'm homophobic. Um, and I can kind of, I can cloak that in the family. And yeah, I, I you know, you could get in, you could go down the whole line of ways that the family has become the new brand that these people use to say the family's under attack um, and we have to protect our ability to have some autonomy and some choice. And actually what we're doing is like trying to uh, have segregation continue or uh, not accrue rights or redistribute wealth to other people. So wait, so is the blue, the blue eagle, which for some reason, that's the thing that fascinates me the most about this uh, is the, the blue eagle. That was a sign that they were for the new deal. Is that what you're saying? The, yeah, the National Recovery Act. Oh, okay. The original NRA, the good NRA. <laughs> there it is. Um, that was one of the New Deal programs, and it, it asked stores to be compliant with with a certain set of like price regulations and stuff like that as part of the recovery during the Depression. And th- these guys, William, what's like William Roach Stratton and what, or no, John Roach Stratton and, and William Bell Riley were going around and telling everyone that's the mark of the beast because like. Complying with like regulations, like the government coming, like big government has always been this, this thing that they'll say is going to sort of step on their autonomy and their free enterprise, which is so central to their, what they say their religion is about. But really it's, it's, it's redistributing wealth, which I think is something that, that people don't like. A lot of people don't like. So they would, I guess I didn't answer your question. The stores would put a blue eagle in the window and, and they were like, that's, that's Satan. I was just I was just trying to figure out what the what the modern blue eagle would be. That that was kind of where I was just leading with it. I've been, I've been trying to think of like, hmm, what can we put in it's our windows? Corona, it's what? coronavirus vaccine. Oh, the masks, right? The mask. Yeah, the it's mask. a giant mask. Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's it. It's it's the mask. It's like please wear a mask in this store. That's what it is. There there you go. Yeah, there there's yeah. so many things to pull out here because exactly what you're talking about. I think that this is important for people to hear. The response to the coronavirus and and shutdowns and closures. The playbook is the exact same, right? Or, or Kevin, maybe I should ask you that. Like that that anti New Deal evangelicalism. Do you see the playbook for response to the shutdowns as the same or different? The, that's what talking about the present is hard for me because I think that things are just like really strange right now. So, like the the conspiracy thinking and. And stuff like that, like the idea that like the pandemic stuff or that masks don't work or that there's no actual risk. I mean, I guess I could run that through that. Yeah, I could run that through and say that it's 
it's still about this, like, we want to protect our autonomy. And, you know, we don't, yeah, 250,000 people have died in the U.S., but they're all uh, mostly BIPOC people, elderly people that we don't care about. So, I mean, that reflects the logic of, like, our politics, our, our nationalism as evangelicals is to produce conditions for our own autonomy and our own liberty and whoever that's on the backs of, we don't care. And one of the ways we can kind of launder that impulse or launder that ideology is by saying that we're, we're against the big government and we want to protect our family's ability to do what it wants or whatever. I mean, I, I think that's helpful culturally. One of the bigger questions though that I have and probably requires some more research is just the connection between big business and that kind of public form of Christianity and evangelicalism. You know, because to me, what you're saying there is that there were people whose pockets were going to get hit if, you know, by the New Deal that, that saw Christianity as an effective means to oppose it. And today, I think that we we see that exact same reality. You know, one of the yeah. one of the kind of um, misnomers about evangelicalism is that it's all a bunch of... Uh, you know, trailer trash, white people like going to these mega churches, but there's massive amounts of wealth being distributed to um, mega churches, to institutions like Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, just a bunch of people in the big business world that are connected to specifically also to the Trump administration that stand to benefit from Christians going out and saying, we're being persecuted by having our churches closed and we need to open the government as well. So I think that, you know, if I'm thinking about like the NBA lockdown, you know, they, they wanted to strike and mainly because the players were called for a strike, mainly because they didn't see the owners making any commitments to racial justice, uh, ending voter suppression, all of these things. And then when you go and look at the people who own NBA teams, these billionaires in our country, I mean, Betsy DeVos is a partial owner of the Orlando Magic. Um, <laughs> Tillman Fertitta, huge Trump supporter, owns the Houston Rockets. Steve Ballmer from Microsoft owns the the Clippers. Like the, these people, there are a couple other... Um, I mean, James Dolan, owner of the Knicks, huge Trump supporter. Like... All of these folks need labor to continue, right? And and they want they need the economy to be open. And I think in a lot of times, specifically through people like the DeVos and Prince family, have very specific and intentional relationships with Christianity because they see those as effective political tools to use that kind of persecution narrative to to stop things like redistribution of wealth yeah. or the, the closing down of the economy or you know $600 a week extra in unemployment and and i think that the persecution complex to kind of bring this this whole bit together is that like they insist on this apolitical state but then they say like well we have to get political because our rights are being persecuted and so that's right. the entry into that arena like now we can fight abortion now we can fight you know rezoning our neighborhoods now we can fight you know having to make, make cakes. cakes for gay people <laughs> like yeah like but, yeah. but it's coming from this this narrative of we're being oppressed when actually it's this massive conglomeration of wealth and power within within the United States yeah. They're like, you're making me do politics again. I didn't want to, even though I've, even though I'm constantly doing it, you're making me do it again. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm, I'm like, I'm talking a lot, but you know, I, I, the one thing I want to say about the, the, the partnership between big business 
and conservative Christians is that I, I do think that that this gets painted by historians and then especially the more famous historians like Isaac mentioned in his text to me that Kevin Cruz book um, One Nation Under God and like maybe maybe I have an axe to grind because because. I'm trying to be an extremely online historian named Kevin, and he <laughs> has kind of taken that space from me on Twitter. So maybe this is why I don't. Well, it's okay. I don't Kevin, love it, his book. It's okay because we have a thing called Fight Corner, so we can bring you back. Okay. And you, can, you can fight the other Kevin on Fight Corner. Okay. It'll be fine. I think yeah. Carrie was. I, mean, I had to look. I could give up the Fight Corner today. That could uh, that could happen today. <laughs> I actually <laughs> muted him on Twitter because he, he tweets so much, but. And, and it was like, even after I unfollowed him, it's like it, it ended up on my feed all the time. But anyways, he, he wrote this book. And and if, if I'm going to step in the fight corner for a second, he didn't do any archival research for it. It was just, it was this book where he's just like drawing on other people's research and making this really obvious argument that it's just, it's conspiratorial. For him, there's like these non-Christian or people who aren't that interested in Christianity, but they are big business people. And they realize that they could trick the podunk Christians. They could trick these rural evangelicals into thinking that free enterprise was in their best interest and that rolling back the new deal was in their best interest. And they duped them all. And it's like this big conspiracy. And I think what part of what I've been trying to say is that, that I think that there's actually a, a deeper connection there between this kind of, logic of uh, personal choice, free, unfettered autonomy that runs really deep in American evangelicalism and the kind of um, whatever forms of American nationalism we've seen around settler colonialism or free market capitalism and so on. And so it's not like they're getting tricked. It's like it's everyone's in it together. It's a partnership. And, you know, like you go back to Dwight Moody, who... You know, Dwight, Dwight Moody's like the OG revivalist who, like him and Billy Graham are like the size kings who are like, I- I've got like 100,000 people at my revival. I've got, you know, Billy Graham like had what some stunt where he had like a million Koreans at a revival. Like, it's like all about getting, getting like front page headlines in the LA Times because of how big the revival was. And, and they say like Dwight Moody's famous quote of saying like, you know, the world is, is, uh, the world's messed up and, uh, and God's given me a lifeboat and all I'm here to do is save as many people as I can, like get as many people on the lifeboat. So he says like, I'm only interested in fame. I'm only interested in these partnerships with big business because I'm interested in saving as many people as possible. But then like out of the other side of his mouth, he's going to the McCormick's in Chicago who are like one of the big magnate families and and said said to them after the Haymarket Square bombing in 1986, I wrote this quote down. He, he says, either these people are to be evangelized or the leaven of communism and infidelity will assume such enormous proportions that it will break out in a reign of terror. Um, and then the McCormicks give Moody like $100,000 to start his Bible Institute. Um, which is a lot of money in the 1880s. And so it's like, it's not like Moody got tricked by big business into like preaching this message that was going to control the masses and like be this really successful tool of social control for the sake of business owners. It was like Moody was in on it too. He liked that idea. He thought, he thought that was a good idea. Um, he knew he could get a lot of money out of these people and that it would help, it would help 
you know, tamp down these urban masses that were burgeoning in the 1880s. So I think there's a partnership. It's not like evangelicals have been tricked. They, they've been, many of them have been invested in this kind of thing for a long time. Well, I'll start. I was just going to say, you know, the the thing, and this might be a real basic uh, correlation, but you see it in, you know, the fervor over over socialism, right? Like socialism has become this thing that's just a catch-all. It used to be liberals. Now it's like socialism becomes this catch-all for thing. Uh, and so I wonder if, you know, and Carrie, I'll let you also say before uh, Kevin answers. But I, my thing is, too, is like wondering, I guess... That seems like it's playing the same game, right? Like let, let's let's demonize something that is actually going to help the people that we need to continue this kind of onslaught on on culture, and just demonize the one thing that might actually bring uh, benefits to their life. Uh, you know, it's, it's like this is this is the thing. Like you know, with like with Reagan, I guess back in the eighties, and getting a lot of you know the poor like working class um, manufacturing types people, and then moving forward with the Republican Party to get those people to start voting against their own interests on these kind of like niche little topics. It seems like it's the same thing. So I, I it's I, I don't want to go too in on evangelical Christianity. I guess I don't know, but the idea of like that seems like a natural like connection. Like if you have these leaders who are wanting to have that connection to power and to tell themselves the lie that they're going to be sanctifying, you know, the nation through these power channels by also continuing to dupe the people who are on the evangelical side, you know, I, I just see, I see that through line. So I guess I'm asking, is that the same through line that we're seeing now or is it kind of shifted or been perverted in a different way, perverted by them uh, into something that we're seeing now with like the MAGA and, and everything else? I think kind of maybe I think what I'm hearing you say is that like you see political figures doing this a little bit, right? You you see them like duping evangelicals a little where it's like there's a niche issue around like the family or um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's some niche issue that they can get them to come vote for them, even though it's against their own interests in yeah, terms of abortion. Like, yeah. And not, not the, I'm not talking right, about the yeah, leaders, which I don't think abortion is a niche issue, but but yeah, I, I, I don't think that they're being duped. And I mean, so this is like, this is the, this predominating narrative in, in my field that evangelicals only cared about abortion and they got courted or they got persuaded that free enterprise was part of that. And I think that there's a, there's a deeper logic of nationalism there where, and then this, this kind of investment in free market capitalism that goes back to long before abortion was a political issue. That's kind of that's kind of why I'm like sprinkling in these references to Moody and big business in the 1880s or these fundamentalist preachers being anti-New Deal in the 1930s is because like the the their connection to and desire to sort of protect and bolster free market capitalism goes back a long time. And it's not like Reagan. There's, there's some historians write about it like Reagan, like suddenly brought this like um anti-new deal politics to national prominence and evangelicals were like oh okay yeah that that's you know that we can get on board with that if you outlaw abortion but they, they've been involved in this kind of big business thing or at least this network of people these kind of e national evangelical leaders and public figures have been involved in in big business and free market capitalism for a long time so, I, I mean, I just think trying to thread the needle here between what you're getting into, which is kind of the history of like uh, American Christianity's like marriage with capitalism uh, with what I know Isaac wanted to talk about today, which was uh, like 
major Christian leaders such as Shane Claiborne, who are um, determinedly, determinedly apolitical in scare quotes um, Mm -hmm. in a way that's very obviously to increase their base um, so that they can continue in my cynical view to like, just keep making as much money as they can from, from progressives and evangelicals who like their brands. Uh, right. I guess. Did you say like, what... like their dreads? Oh no, you said brands. <laughs> you said brands. Sorry. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, I guess I'm just wondering if we can, if there's a connection to be made there, or if I'm just like shooting from the hip. Well, I think Carrie, the, the connection that I see and maybe Kevin can, can correct me if this is wrong is that somehow like maybe under Trump, I, I mean, Claiborne's been around and, and doing his grift about, you know, having white man dreads and, and other things for a while. But I, I think <laughs> under, I mean, well, I mean, he rose to power, like he sort of rose to prominence in the Bush years, right? So um, I think that there's kind of been this contested terrain suddenly about who, which there's been a rise of kind of like progressive, as you say, uh, evangelical voices who also want to be very public, like Shane Claiborne, like John Pavlovitz, who are some of the other people we named last time, Jonathan Wilson, Hargrove, whatever. Like they want to have constant media battles with the other groups of people. Yeah. And we're seeing this a lot right now around the election. Like, oh, the, the Jerry Falwell Juniors and the Franklin Grahams are are rising up. So like, what is what is the quote unquote progressive response to that? And we have these people, Rachel Held Evans is a, a key one because she always wanted to contest that terrain. And I, I think that maybe what I'm trying to, what the connection that I see is like under Trump, the, there's been this maybe, especially in the younger generation, this kind of mass disillusionment with the American project. And there's been a, a sort of group of progressive evangelicals who are stepping up to kind of point to Trump and his evangelical cohort who make that their brand and try to say, actually, what's really American and Christian is, you know, to think about a, a Rob Lee, Reverend Rob Lee, the supposed alleged descendant of Robert E. Lee, um, tweeting at John Lewis's funeral, live your life in a way that George Bush and Barack Obama attend, but but Donald Trump doesn't. Like <laughs> the real American Christian life is this uh, is now this apolitical center because it is apolitical again, right? Like it, it's just anti-Trump. But but is that you know ultimately like what is that end goal? I think Carrie's right that on some level it's building this like large media platform that as soon as Medicare for All or Green New Deal or any of this stuff is is getting into the mainstream, if Biden and the Democrats take over control after the election, those forces are going to be reactionary against almost immediately, but just in a way that's more effective to the young folks. I think there, I, I kind of want to just keep talking just to see how many people you can just keep remembering and naming. But anyway, I, I wonder too, just to tag on to that, if, if part of that is because a lot of what I see is a person that did not come out of evangelical culture at all. Like I see a lot of that is like trying to reclaim something from it, that there is an inherent goodness in it that, that can be reclaimed still. But if I'm hearing you, Kevin, say correct, it seems like it's kind of been a part of that from the beginning. So, yeah, but you know, I think, like I said earlier, I'm one of these people that you talked about in the first episode. I'm like an ex-evangelical who, who never stopped deconstructing. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. That's, I think, I think y'all three and your audience are interested in exploring, like, what's the good, is there a good thing here? So, um, you know, 
Go ahead. Basically, yeah, we need to, we to, need to A, vet our guests better and B, remember our takes from the last podcast better. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, I, well, I, when we recorded this, I mean, I will be clear that I don't think there's anything good to recover in evangelicalism because I think I agree with Kevin that a, a lot of it is a reaction to the end of the Civil War, the end of slavery. And like, how are we going to keep these these structures and this political balance in place after that and use Christianity as the cultural vessel to to get it done? But um, I know that, yeah, there are shades of gray on the amongst the host on that. But for me, um, yeah, I'm I'm with I'm on the burn it down train. So wait, Carrie, it's, it's did, just yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, Carrie, did you grow up evangelical? I know you grew up in the Methodist Church. I'm assuming, but would would you consider it evangelical upbringing? Just to kind of get all of our cards on the table here. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, but I grew up in Texas, and I identify a lot with. Um, People's, people who grew up in like non-denominational evangelical churches experiences because I think uh, part of the failings of the main line in the, you know, the 2000s and the 2010s when I was a kid uh, is that they just kind of took whatever was popular at the time and kind of imported it into their children's and youth ministries. And so I think I ended up with a lot of evangelical influence in my main line experience. Uh, so yeah, this makes me sad yeah, and, because and, I'm having a realization well, that I could have been all of your youth pastors. I think because of my advanced age. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> uh, I went to Wheaton, so I'm like, I'm deep in it. Yeah, so. oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is the moment where Kevin's like, wait, what did I sign up for here? Why how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're talking about, like Isaac was talking about the, like the, the change in the political economy and, and the, the possibility of um, kind of redistribution of rights and wealth after the Civil War and how there, there's, we can read a reaction against that. And I do think that, that if we're really trying to understand the last four decades, it's, it's a... It's a reaction against the 60s and, and a reaction against women's liberation, a reaction against gay rights, a reaction against Roe v. Wade, a reaction against the civil rights movement. And, and that's when, when we look at like public evangelical figures, whether it's Franklin Graham or, you know, whoever else you want to name, that, that that's the kind of the work they're doing. That's the work Jerry Falwell was doing and Jerry Falwell Jr. carried on. And, and just, Wait, you know, side note, did you see that he's suing Liberty? What? No. <laughs> yeah, that came out this morning. Oh, <laughs> for what? Man. Wrongful termination? I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't open the article because I had to come do this, but... <laughs> I'll look it up. Someone's got to read farm. it. Someone's got to send him the thing in like 1 Corinthians or wherever it is about I'm not supposed to sue other people <laughs> in the church. Um, <laughs> power move. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean... I think that there's also a, there has been a relationship to fame and like an obsession with fame that goes back like Billy Graham. I think Billy Graham's like this classic example of this where he really tried to brand himself as apolitical. And he said everything he was doing was tr to try to raise his visibility as a preacher to save more souls. And, and so starting in, in 1950, he was like knocking on the door of the White House for every single president, the Democrat or Republican, to try to get in there because he thought that would raise his raise his publicity levels. And uh, 
um, people still talk like in 2018, I think was when he died. And like every obituary was about how he was apolitical and how he wouldn't have courted Trump. Trump's the one president he wouldn't have courted. And I like just don't believe that because I think there, he, he showed himself to be willing or whether, I mean, LBJ, he, he skinny dipped in the white house pool with LBJ Extremely disturbing. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that I know that now. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And LBJ, okay, so Truman, this is one of my favorite things about Graham. Like, uh, he and Harry Truman, he, this was the first president he tried to become friends with in 1950. And he showed up at the White House with his three friends, and they were wearing pastel suits with hand painted ties and white shoes. And they went into the Oval Office and they asked if they could pray for him. And he said yes. And they like laid hands on him without asking, uh, like evangelicals will do. And started it like started being like, oh yes, Lord. Like as Billy Grant's praying, you know, that like, oh yes, Jesus stuff. And Harry Truman asked them to leave after like 15 minutes and said they could never come back, declared them declared Billy Grant persona non grata. That was like his first try. But then after that, he's like, every president's like, I got to become friends with this guy. And that's why there's that famous thing where he he's on the Nixon tapes, like like doing an anti-Semitism because he's just like, oh my God, Nixon likes me. And this is going to be so good for my profile. And like some of the stuff he says on the Nixon tapes is like so nasty and like, like next level anti-Semitism. And then people were like, well, he wouldn't have... Billy Graham would not have been friends with Trump. It's like, if you look at what he was willing to do to raise his profile as this like apolitical king, then then I think he would have been right there befriending Trump. This is something I've been thinking about is the the way that American Christians of like all stripes just really want to ally themselves with political power. Um, but when you were talking about Billy Graham, uh, trying to court Truman, who famously only president to drop an atomic bomb, also only president from Missouri. So shout out Missouri. I was born in Kansas City. Um, I went to state. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Yeah, but well, I mean, I went to the Truman Library um, when I was like twenty or something. It was like um, we went back to Kansas City to see uh, friends, and like they have like part, a big part of the Truman Library is reckoning with his decision to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. Um, and it's actually very, it's like, it makes you kind of sick to your stomach to see the people in the guest book, like, because they ask you, should he have dropped the bombs? And like, you can write down your response or whatever. It's actually, I didn't like seeing that. But, you know, Billy Graham was trying to court him like after Truman dropped the bombs, <laughs> like right. after he did this like pretty horrific act. And to bring it back to why I've been thinking about this, uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, is doing like an interfaith prayer service for the election coming up soon. And some of the headliners are like Shane Claiborne. There's like, well, there's like a couple of people. There's like a Sikh leader and a Muslim leader whose names I would have to look up because I didn't recognize them. But one of the, like the headliner, like the first person on the press release is Condoleezza Rice. Uh, secretary, former secretary of state, also war criminal, like pretty directly yeah. responsible for like millions of deaths of people in the Middle East. Uh, so I've been pretty upset about that uh, because I am Episcopalian as well. And 
I don't know really. I don't think I have a question. I think I just wanted to bring that up and talk about yeah. how it's like still happening. <laughs> like, right. Uh, and, I mean, it's, yeah. Um, I was going to say like, I mean, this is, I think that there's, there's, we could talk for hours. You could do like a whole series on like the, the work that the word apolitical does in American Christianity. And people have been saying that since like the 1820s that like, oh, we just do religion. We don't do politics. And you know, I think that word does a lot of work. And that's, that's basically what they mean is that they're willing to interact with Democrats and Republicans. But if we understand politics as, as um, relationships of power, and and distribution of wealth and, and power, then it's extremely political because it's a is an alignment with the American National Project, with all of the anti-indigenous violence that comes with that, and all of the overseas war, tight-knit relationship between American finance and the American military. Like that, that's Shane Claiborne and Michael Curry going up on stage with someone who represents that, with Condoleezza Rice, you know, and saying, like, well, we're being apolitical right now. But if we're talking about politics in terms of power, there's a lot of politics there, you know, like in terms of the 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 way that that these people are so eager to align themselves with the American National Project. And that's what Graham's doing. And it's I mean, his career, Billy Graham's career is all informed by the Cold War. And the presidents want to want to pitch America as a Judeo-Christian nation at the time. That was their favorite term. And put one nation under God on the money and in the pledge and all this stuff because it it's part of winning the Cold War and it's it's it's, it's all about power but it's this kind of obscured uh, violence against people whether it's in the Middle East or in the 19th century on the frontier or whatever um, yeah so there's a, there's a lot of power and violence embedded in it but you can kind of launder it with with the word apolitical. Kevin, I, I would just want to stay on Graham for one second. And, and Brian, I see you. Um, I, I think that because I want to make sure that people really hear this, that you're talking about how things like One Nation Under God in the pledge on money, all of that was 1950s propaganda added to these things and and not present before those. It was you know at the heart of the Cold War. Could you just to, to follow up on Graham though and the atomic bomb... Could you remind us what some of his political stances that he took on Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the atomic bomb, all those things, like some of his, like where he ended up aligning himself politically? Because I know that he did make statements on things like the Vietnam War and and segregation at some point, right? Yeah. And I mean, I I feel like I'd have to, I'd have to pull it up to, to be really confident about it. I mean, the one thing, like his biographer... Uh, Grant Wacker, all, all our Duke Div heads out there in the audience are hooting and hollering, hearing Grant Wacker's name dropped. But his his biographer, like, you know, loves to talk about how Graham went back and forth on segregation, and how he he he's got this like part of of Graham's biography where he like he like brought the rope down. There was like a rope between the mm-hmm. black and the white people, and he took it down early, and then later he put it back up, and it's so. I mean, the thing about him is he was a little bit of a chameleon on specific political issues, and he would often kind of divert it. So, like, I study the environment, for example. That's that's what I actually write about. And and I've looked at his, Billy Graham's papers in the archive, and people sent him letters asking him to comment on the environment for, like, a story they were writing. And he's he just, over and over again, he's like... Uh, the environment I care about is the environment of man's heart. 
and he'll say that he'll say that shit about segregation or he'll say that shit about the Vietnam War that it's like it's man's heart that I'm worried about. Um, so it's again, it's that like the 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 idea of apolitical is doing a lot of work for him, but he is steadily aligning himself with sort of the American national project. Um, and I think one of the reasons he's so eager to be close to power is because he he likes the way that America is expanding its influence in the several decades after World War II, and that includes Vietnam. So I can't remember exactly what he said about it, but I mean, he, he the one, I, yeah, the one political issue he would get really concrete about was the Cold War and talk about how horrible the communist world was because it was godless. Um, and that includes the sort of opponents in Vietnam and all the other proxy wars because they were godless and, and you know, America was going to expand the influence of Christianity in theory because it, it was so invested in that as, as part of its Cold War propaganda. I mean, that, that the apolitical chameleon aspect of him is just... But uh, the cutting things out, and you could easily be explaining uh, Shane Claiborne, right? Like, not the dunk on friend of the show, Clay, uh, Shane Claiborne, but let's just go ahead and do it. He, he does the same thing, right? Like, he, right. He, he issue jumps, and we talked about this before, but he issue jumps between these two different things, and he never actually ties any of that stuff into a cohesive thing that talks, or more importantly, convicts the different topics that he's writing about. So he'll like, he'll compartmentalize a topic, talk about it and write this thing that is palatable for the most part between progressives and some evangelicals. But then like when he, like I'm thinking about the death penalty, which is something that I care a lot about. And that was a terrible book, but we'll just put that out there. Um, and then anyway, if you want to read a good book on the death penalty, we'll fly away by Brian Bliss available in all stores. Um, but anyway, it, it might just be that he's on my corner, uh, kind of like the, the historian Kevin is on uh, your corner. But <laughs> anyway, but then, but then he switches off and he does that tweet. We've talked about this, or we talked about it in a previous thing, uh, that he does this tweet about the sanctity of life. And there's no kind of connection between those two things, right? So he, yeah. he's doing that exact same thing. He's doing that thing where he can say, I'm going to make this palatable to both audiences, but I'm never going to actually think about it kind of broadly enough within a theological framework. So, yeah. anyway. I'm, I, I'm like, well, so I'm a little, I guess I should let the hosts do this, but I'm like aware of the time. Um, but there's a whole long rabbit hole about the evangelical left that we haven't really gotten into. Um, so I don't know if you want to have me back on or <laughs> find someone else to do that, or if you want me to talk a little bit about it. Why don't you just give um, yeah. us some crumbs? Give us temp- tease the rabbit hole. So, <laughs> for God's sake, that's a <laughs> that's a phrasing, <laughs> phrasing. <laughs> Not a title <laughs> contender for this episode. It absolutely is. <laughs> yeah, tease the rabbit hole. I have to mute no. myself. <laughs> what, when y'all were talking about the the, oh, the the main kind of progressive figures like Rachel Held Evans and, and Shane Claiborne and whoever else you want to put on that list. I mean, one of the people who you didn't mention, but who goes way back is Jim Wallace, who, you know, was... Oh, my uh, God. Uh, oh, no. Oh, just clear your schedule. He was in the news... Another hour. He was in the news very recently, you know, but he, he was a member of Students for a Democratic Society... Um, and then kind of jump ship for this kind of progressive evangelical market segment in the late 60s. And him and another guy named Ron Sider, who wrote the book Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, who was kind of the original Shane Claiborne, I would say. Shane Claiborne maybe stole his bag a little. Put white band on it. 
<laughs> I mean, there's pictures of like Ron Sider did in the in the mid '70s. He did like these photo shoots where he's like leaning on his shitty car in front of in front of like his his house that's supposed to be shitty. Although like post 2009, it looks like a a place where like a yuppie would go gentrify. Like the house that he's in front of looks pretty good now. But in the '70s, he like does these photo shoots about how like he's he's like. They, they called it simple lifestyle, simple living back then. You know, you can call it voluntary poverty or whatever that Shane Claiborne does now. Um, but basically that their whole shit has been ever since Jim Wallace and Ron Sider came on the scene in the late 60s, early 70s, is this consistent life ethic. Um, and that is being saying that they are they're pro-life across the board. So they're anti-war, they're anti-death penalty and they're anti-abortion. And so that, I just thought of that when you mentioned Shane Claiborne tweeting about sanctity of life, that that, that has been the, the central message of the evangelical left since Jim Wallace and Ron Sider in the early 70s. That's kind of how they've carved their little niche is by saying like, uh, you know, we can be anti-abortion because we're also anti-war or something like that. I... <laughs> have so many thoughts, but I just, I want to put on pod that Jim Wallace is not above allying himself with white supremacist power, as is exemplified in the recent fiasco that ended him leaving Sojourners. Right. No, he didn't leave. Oh, is he not? I thought he stepped down. He's on the board. He stepped down as like editor-in-chief. Oh. Yeah. But it's his baby. He could never leave, you know? I, (laughs) I also think because of my age, I'm a little bit like... I've always been a little bit beyond Sojourners. Like it's never really been in my life. But it's a fascinating publication to me because it's like, well, I don't know. He he talks a big game, but you know what? Dorothy Day, OG Catholic leftist, was a fucking anarchist. (laughs) I was like 16 or something when he started doing his, his like book tour before the 2004 election. So it was like kind of big for me at the time. It was called God's Not a Republican or a Democrat. So again, it's the apolitical thing. Or like, you know, we're between parties with our consistent life ethic, our world famous, universally beloved consistent life ethic. Again, you know, maybe this is a breadcrumb or maybe it, it can get cut and it's another conversation. But I, when so I, Ron Sider's the one guy who we've talked about today who's in my dissertation and who I've studied pretty closely. Um, and his book, which made this huge splash called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, is like one of the original texts for this progressive evangelical movement. And it really set the tone and it really influenced people like Shane Claiborne, who will blurb new editions of it and he also blurb new editions of this more with less cookbook that came out around that time where it's it's all about we're affluent we live in the u.s we um have to be cognizant of that and we have to live a lifestyle that looks good it looks better than than what most other americans are doing to the rest of the world and so ron Sider in the introduction to rich christians in the age of hunger like he's it's like his attention getting device he's like he's he's like imagine a situation where a starving indian man has gotten his hands on a nuclear bomb and he is on the east coast and ready to strike because he's so upset with american affluence and so upset with with american 
yeah, American affluence, American overconsumption, that he's going to like set off a terrorist attack. And he's, he's like scaring his audience into like eating less meat. And he, he tells them like not to buy clothes, new clothes for the next three years. So you can like hear the Shane Claiborne in there, you know? Um, but it's the, the interesting thing is, and I mean, this is a long rabbit hole in relation to my dissertation, but, but these guys, including Ron Sider, actively prevent um, and actively kind of work against some more radical restructuring that Christians in the global South were advocating for at the time. They were advocating for this thing called like a new international economic order that was going to undo the Bretton Woods system of World Bank and, and International Monetary Fund. And he's like, no, we just need to change our lifestyles and eat less meat and and not buy clothes and it'll be fine. And so I hear in that like this, the apolitical is doing a lot of work still. And it's like, can we leave the international structures in place that make America so powerful and make us so affluent? And then you people in the global South, please don't come attack us as terrorists. We will eat less meat and we'll buy less new clothes. And so we won't be so upsetting to you. But we'll leave all the structures in place, but we'll be less upset to you. And so, like, that's, I, I don't know. I, when I see Shane Claiborne, I, I see echoes of that idea of like, we still live in the US, we're still very wealthy, we're still very comfortable and affluent, very safe, but we don't have all the trappings of American affluence that are so upsetting to people elsewhere. Well, um, and, and to me, yeah. Well, I was going to say, now that, now that you've, uh, connected that dot, you know, Claiborne rising up at the beginning of the quote-unquote war on terror really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, can I just say something about voluntary uh, poverty and how stupid that is? Like, it, it's stupid in, in a number of ways, uh, and a lot of what, Kevin, what you just said, but the idea that, like, sorry, this is, the, I've been officially triggered by this, is like, I have a lot of friends who have done certain things like certain things like this and decided to live, quote-unquote, in poverty, and it's like, you're not deciding. You're never actually living in poverty if you can step out of it and go into, you know, and rest easy on the fact that you have a safety net. You know, as somebody who came out of kind of a poverty background, like that shit drives me nuts. I just had to be on record saying that. I'll toss it back to you, Isaac. <laughs> I was just going to say that's not unrelated to what we're talking about because that what I'm saying is that the the inner logic there for a lot of these people is to leave. Yes. the existing power structures in place, but to live a, a kind of hipster lifestyle that that isn't so grotesque looking or something like that. It's like a clean, kind of sleek, refined version of affluence, which, is, you know, Shane Claiborne has failed at, at looking sleek with with his stupid clothes and, <laughs> and hair. But you know, that's the idea of voluntary poverty, right? Like we'll be less, we'll be less upsetting to poor people um, and that will hopefully make it so that we don't have to actually change anything structurally. Or it's like it's like having kids in youth group sleep in cardboard boxes for thirty hours a <laughs> or some or some shit like that. It's like this is doing nothing. Like yes. I, I literally almost got fired from my first church job. Uh, well, maybe not literally, but I pissed a lot of people off in my first church job. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go in too much because I know at least one person is listening <laughs> from that. But it's like I, I because I was like, this is dumb. We're not actually teaching any any kids anything about this. We're just giving them some kind of like weird voyeuristic experience with poverty. And then they're going home and picking out on Chick Fil A or something. Anyway, I, it's just like that. That sort of that, that's a whole other show. I don't want to get us off on this topic. This is something that I can can go on and 
The voluntary poverty thing is actually kind of, well, it's interesting because it's also so close to like uh, that concept of moral philosophy of utilitarianism, which is, I forget the guy's name, Peter something. It's like Peter Singer. That's like his whole thing. I read I really Seeger, but that's a different guy. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read this really interesting book called Strangers Drowning um, by Larissa McFuquar which it's like non-Christian people who are just so morally compelled that they, it's, it goes beyond voluntary poverty to like, they actually do understand like the systems of the world are so bad that they are like voluntarily downwardly mobile and like doing a, and like some people like move to Guatemala and like are a nurse in like a tiny village in Guatemala for like the rest of their lives at like great personal cost. The book's really interesting because the author herself uh, is not super present, but in, is not like present in the narrative, but is clearly kind of like, is this good or is this bad? Like, she's not like saying like, these are like, like great people who are doing amazing things. It's kind of like, look at the devastation that they're also wreaking in their personal lives. But what I find interesting about like the Christian progressive version of that is so often like, we're not fully willing to like uh, sustain the personal damage that, that kind of utilitarianism can can reek in your personal life. Like we want to have an iPhone and we want to like, we want to do our fucking podcasts. And uh, Okay, calm down, Carrie. Podcasts sorry. are fine. You can, <laughs> be, you can be economic justice inclined and have a podcast. Anyway, uh, I brought up Dor- Dorothy Day already, but now she's <laughs> on my mind. But it like, I read a biography of Dorothy Day by her granddaughter recently. And uh, like her, Dorothy Day's like personal life was crazy it was like she she did not do uh, perhaps in the american understanding she did not do right by her daughter uh tamar but she also is seen as like a saint um and so i guess like i get annoyed with like shane claiborne because it's like so clear that uh he's peddling something that he doesn't fully believe in or isn't willing to fully commit to and i'm like i don't know commit to the bit dude <laughs> yeah, it it was like the. I mean, the thing that what it comes down to for me is like, are these people like? I do think Dorothy Day, you know, is is creating this anarchist mutual aid network that that was really trying to do some real work there, and so that there's something more concrete with her voluntary poverty that she's doing in the Catholic worker movement. And that it, what it comes down to is like, are, are, yeah, are they willing to commit to the kind of radical economic changes that are actually needed to deal with the, the power structures that are making them a little uncomfortable. And that's what I see a lot of the progressive evangelical crew that I look at, like Ron Sider, who's, yeah, he's like the original Shane Claiborne or whatever is they're not, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're using the voluntary poverty to avoid the real changes, which I don't think Dorothy Day was doing. I don't think she was avoiding anything, but I'm not an expert on her, but she seems to be a little better to me. (laughs) I think that the crazy thing about some of these things that that we're talking about, because we've kind of gone down into this place of like, okay, how do, how did evangelical Christians in the nineties and the two thousands start kind of um, engaging with social issues in, in like a simulation way. We're starting to see um, that seep into the uh, secular world. So when I was a student at UVA, they did a poverty simulation where you could go and like um, you were in like a uh, programmed thing 
where you had a certain amount of money and you had to like figure out how to pay your bills. It was like a 48-hour experience. Oh my partially. God, AmeriCorps still does that. My brother did AmeriCorps and he had to do that. Yeah. And there's also a story about like at the... Um, the Kevin, you're going to have to help me out. The, the Davos thing in Switzerland, the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? When they get yeah. together, they did a thing, like an actual virtual reality experience of what it was like to be like a migrant <laughs> coming to Europe. So like Holy put on shit. these goggles. And and then I read last night about a uh, a lab at, at Stanford or Cal Berkeley where it's called the Prejudice Lab, where it shows you that you're being racist in, in, in unconscious ways. And so like suddenly, you, you know, this this tech is going to help you be a better person, fit into that consistent life ethic rather than actual human beings and being in community with them. But I I, kind of want to go back and kind of end with a big picture summation of some of the stuff we've talked about. Because I think that, you know, why why should people care about all this stuff? If you listen to this podcast and you don't know who Ron Snyder or Shane Claiborne or or Billy Graham are or whatever, like, why should you care? And, And the answer is that ultimately these people are shaping... Um, policy in the United States on a major level. Uh, Hillary Clinton's United Methodist, uh, George W. Bush is United Methodist, James Comey is United Methodist, uh, Jeff Sessions United Methodist, Tucker Carlson's an Episcopalian. Like we can go on and on and on. These people in power, we we not even to mention the vast vast amounts of money that the Catholic Church pours into preparing and and finding people to put on the Supreme Court to do things like overturn Roe v. Wade. We see that with Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett. All of them are coming out of this group called the Federalist Society that is a, a ultra-right Catholic group that's just, you know, has been dedicated for decades um, since the 1980s to setting its judicial program for the country. And so even if you are not Christian listening to this, these people and this type of Christianity that is absolutely influencing the direction of American power. And, and I think the other thing about it is, is that people who have left evangelicalism or left the mainline, who've left the Roman Catholic Church, you're opting out in a lot of ways of this type of worldview. This is what you're exiting, right? Like this sort of combination of very public cultural grievance that that kind of forms and and moves alongside the American project in the world of empire and and, and sort of you know, extreme capitalism. So that when when you're thinking about, okay, like what am I left with after I said, you know, fuck off to the silver ring thing, what you're leaving is this public cultural project. And um there's there's space there to kind of turn around and say, what actually is Christianity? Because we we often without digging into it can just assume that the Christianity of our particular cultural moment is the expression of the faith that's existed for however many years. But that we're living what I think, hopefully, what Kevin has helped us kind of dig out here in this episode is that we're living in a very specific cultural moment where Christian actors are working in uh, concerted efforts with American politicians for the sake of, a, of very particular goals. Um, Kevin, is that a fair summation of kind of where we've been throughout this pod? Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean we haven't said it, but but evangelicals are, are have have proven like an amazingly consistent and reliable voting block. And they're a huge reason why Republican presidents have done so well. And they voted at a higher percentage for each Republican president since Reagan, so that more a higher percentage of evangelicals voted for Trump than did Reagan in nineteen eighty. 
Um, so there's just been this really successful alliance and it's, 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 uh, yeah, been a, played a huge role in shaping some of the stuff we've seen. And I think the Supreme Court is a, is a great example of that. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I come at it from a different angle, but uh, there's definitely an opportunity to make Christianity as it exists into something else. And even as a, as a slight outsider to it, I would love to see that happen. <laughs> well, I think the point is just that people, Christianity is a vehicle for people's motivations, just like anything else. You know, like when we talk about the referendum on institutions that we're going through as a country, you know, from the Democratic and Republican parties to the academy, the church is just as malleable as any of those things to the influence of outsiders or to the influence of, of, um, politics within the country where they are. I mean, that's the whole story of Christianity. So I I think that, um, on, on one level, it's kind of like, You've got to make, I, I think w- w- when we get down to all sorts of organizing of any kind, religious or non, the local level is where you have the opportunity to kind of to set the, uh, the terms of how you engage with community, no matter what that community looks like. But if, you're, if you want to understand the political evolution of the United States in the last 100 years, you can't really do that without accounting for the influence of sort of American Christianity on the federal government and and our cultural life. And we haven't even discussed um, the family. So, which is an extremely weird evangelical conspiracy that you could watch a really great Netflix documentary about. It's called The Family. So I um, thought you were talking about the family unit, but yes, the family. Next time. (laughs) Yeah, the nuclear family. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's named that way for a reason, as Kevin has told us. I mean, I'm more concerned about the fact that we have an actual Lex Luthor in our society now. And, you know... So, oh boy, what are you Elon talking about? Musk? No, are, I'm talking you, about Jeff Bezos. Bezos. Yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. I was on Zuckerberg, but Bezos is is more of the Lex Luthor. He's got guy. the look, so that's that's part of it. Elon Mark's Musk like, tweeting will will coo whoever we want to in July about Bolivia. And did you see <laughs> like a, a miners' union leader was just beaten to death by a fascist mob in Bolivia? Which, my friends in Bolivia, so it was kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, there were like, like actual massacres that happened after that coup last year. So, and, and it's, it's like for Elon Musk's battery addiction or whatever lithium problem that he has. Yeah. I mean, I, so, if, if anybody wants more info, go. yeah, if there's more info on Chris, if you want more info on Christo fascism in South America, check out the Machete Imate uh, podcast. Shout out to T Gracchus on Twitter friend of the pod. Uh, we'll have him on to uh, talk about Bolivia and, and a lot of colonialism because it, it goes back to the Cold War stuff that Kevin was talking about with Billy Graham. Actual also, just, friend of the pod, I should say. Yeah. You should say. Part of, uh, before we wrap up, just a reading recommendation that I think kind of uh, sums up a lot of the last 60-ish years of American Christianity that Kevin was talking about is uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Christy Covis Demez. It's a lot more about uh, how American Christianity is tied to uh, masculinity and power. So if you're interested in that at all, it's a good book. Recently read it. Word. All right, y'all. Plenty of takes have been exposed today, (laughs) as all will be until we get canceled. (laughs) Peace. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. It was fun.